Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the third week of our series called Our Mission. This week, Pastor Mike will be teaching from Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that down in the show notes. Thanks for joining us, and without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. I wanted to start off by taking a couple weeks of reviewing our church mission. You know, this is, this is really what the elders have studied God's word and said, this is what we feel God has called us to. We have a mission statement that we want to hold ourselves accountable to God's calling. And it's to, to know Christ, his life-changing power, and to make him known. And so we started on, on New Year's, to know Christ, what does that mean? Last week, it's life-changing power, what's that mean? And this week, we want to look at that last section, to make him known. And, uh, and, and that's sharing, that's talking about sharing our faith, leading people to Christ. And, and even as part of this mission, something we don't talk that much about is it is because this is short, we seek it to be memorable. We also have broken it down into some core values that we say, okay, these are the things that are explaining and breaking out what we believe are these priorities. And, and, and so again, we hold ourselves accountable to that. So one of those is about evangelism, the priority of evangelism. As disciples, we desire to both know and live out his heart for servanthood and his passion for the lost. This is made evident through our commitment to praying for unsaved friends and to personal involvement in intentional evangelism. We want to be committed to that as a church. We want to hold ourselves accountable to that. And that's, again, not just from our own opinions. It comes from our study of God's word. So this morning, we're going to look at one of those passages, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, which is often known as the Great Commission, God's kind of challenge to us as a church to say, this is your mission. And uh, so if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew 28. And as we always, uh, we start by reading God's word, the passage we're going to look at this morning and and take the main points from. So let me start by reading from Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And he continues, lo, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we have to be here this morning. Father, to be able to celebrate what you're doing. Father, even I celebrate you just even raising of funds and and renovation, but the most exciting thing is always going to be people coming to know saving faith. Father, help us to keep that priority, that, that passion for the lost. Father, I pray that you continue to do that kind of miracle that only you can do. Father, I pray that even this morning we would sense your heart, that we would sense the heart of your son. And in this last call that he gave to the church before his ascension, Father, that you would allow us to hear your heart and allow it to be something that becomes our heart and our passion and our practice. I pray your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, this week you may have heard there were some problems with airline uh, travel. There was a big shutdown on Wednesday where there was a computer glitch that caused uh, the cancellation of 1,300 flights. 10,000 flights were delayed. And apparently it all came down to one FAA engineer that accidentally replaced the wrong computer file in a maintenance check. And, And one little mistake can cause that kind of problem. And, and you just think about that, it's, it's significant. And it reminded me actually of a story, another airline story, uh, where again, a little mistake caused even more tragic problems. It was actually one of the most famous airline crashes of all time. It goes back 50 years ago, 1972, uh, Eastern Airline Flight 401. It was December 29th, 1972, Eastern Airlines Flight 401 
uh, crashed into the Florida Everglades, killing 103 people. It was a brand new L-1011 flight. It was piloted by one of Eastern's most experienced pilots. But what happened is it was a routine flight up until they were coming in for the landing in Miami International Airport at about 11.30 p.m. And as they came in, they put down the flight uh, or the uh, landing gear, and one of the pilots noticed that the landing gear light did not come on. And so they weren't sure. There could be one of two things. One is the light could have burned out. The other is the landing gear, for whatever reason, wasn't down. And actually, even the second problem wasn't that big of a problem because you could actually, they had a manual uh, way of putting it down, worst case scenario. And so they told the tower, and the tower told them to you know, pull out from their descent, climb to 2,000 feet, and to fly a pattern around the Everglades. And after reaching the assigned uh, uh, pattern over the Everglades, the pilots both started to work on the light. The flight engineer went downstairs and was trying to look through the window to see if he could see that the, flight, or the landing gear was down. But what happened is that they became totally fixated on trying to fix this light. And they didn't notice that, although it was on autopilot, for whatever reason, they started a slow descent. And, and not only was there slow descent, nobody noticed that. The warning, there was a warning bell that started going off in the cockpit, telling them that there was low altitude, but they were so fixated on this light that no one heard the warning light, or the warning bell. And, uh, and they eventually, after six minutes of slow descent, they crashed into the Everglades, again, killing over 100 people. The final report said that it was pilot error, and here's what they wrote. It said, preoccupation with a malfunction of the nose landing gear positioning indicator system distracted the crew's attention from the instruments and allowed the descent to go unnoticed. Ultimately, the problem was there was a burnt-out light bulb. The landing gear was down the whole time. They had a burnt-out light bulb, and they were so fixated on the burnt-out light bulb that no one noticed. No one was flying the plane, and no one noticed the descent. Uh, it's actually very famous, not only because movies that were made about it, books were written by it, but people have talked and spoke about how there's a, the danger of becoming so fixated on one problem that you forget the main job. Now, in that, I thought, is it possible, in a sense, that this could also be an illustration for the church? Is it possible that we could make the mistake of doing good things and, in the process, miss the main thing? You see, when you think about the pilot, they were doing things that were good. They were, that was part of their job. That was something that was important to make sure that the landing gear was down. But what happened is that their mistake was they become all, all became so fixated on that that they were so focused on the light that they forgot to fly the, fly the plane. And that's a crisis. They were so concerned with one thing that they lost sight of other things. And I think in the same way in our Christian walk and even in our church, it's possible that we can be focused on doing good things, things that are important, things that are part of the Christian life, part of, of what the church should do. And in the process of doing good things, we can lose sight of the essential things. We can, in a sense, lose sight and forget to fly the plane. We can slowly then lose this spiritual altitude, and before we even know there's a problem, suddenly there's a disaster. Now, one of the ways that I think we can do that is lose sight of this primary call that God has given to us as a church, this call that is known as the Great Commission. The Great Commission was given to us by Jesus after his ascension or after his resurrection from the grave. He spent 40 days with his disciples, and after those 40 days, he then ascends into heaven. And Matthew tells us that right before he ascends into heaven, his last words to his disciples are this, this passage known as the Great Commission. It's a statement of, of Jesus giving the church its mission of why we exist. This is what God calls us to be, what he calls us to do. 
Now, the sad thing is, that, again, a lot of times as a church, we can be focused on doing other things that are good and part of the mission, and in the process, lose sight of this essential thing. We, we lose sight of flying the plane. In fact, to illustrate how common this is, in 2017, the Barner Group did a survey of believers, people who identified as Christians who, and who regularly attended church, and he asked them about what they thought about the Great Commission. And over half, 51% said they didn't know what the commission, Great Commission was. And he thought, well, at least, you know, 49% did. Well, actually, that 49%, they heard of it before, but they didn't know what it means. So only 17% of the people actually had any idea what the Great Commission was. Now, if you don't know what the Great Commission, it's the passage we read just a few moments ago. It's this great statement of a challenge of, of the church's mission that Jesus gives us in Matthew 28. He came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he gives us this challenge. Go therefore make, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them observe all that I've commanded you. And when it calls us to go and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, it's saying, okay, make disciples. And part of that is finding people who are not currently followers of Christ and share your faith with them and help lead them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, when that happens, we celebrate it. We have a baptism service coming in a couple weeks. And what we're doing is we're, we're celebrating the culmination of that profession in baptism. And so it's this whole process of what's often called evangelism and leading people to saving faith. And then as we do that, then not stopping there, but then teaching them to understand and obey all that God has commanded us. So even in that, here's one of the challenges that we have. See, all of us at some point in time in our life, we're non-Christians. None of us are born Christians. That's something that we all come to at one point. And each one of us who are here, who are a believer in Jesus Christ, are here because someone took it upon themselves to build a relationship with you, with me, and then made the effort to share their faith with us. So each one of us are here because someone took that intentional effort to bring us to Jesus. Now, that being the case, unfortunately, what's natural for us as individuals and even as a church is in time to lose the sight of the importance of doing that for other people, of reaching out to other people in our sphere of influence who don't know Christ and bringing them to Christ. Instead, what we do is we tend to focus more on our spiritual growth and our comfort and, and, and what's easy for us. So instead of seeing ourselves as part of this church that is called now to go reach the world, you see, we identify the church increasingly as, well, what's, it, what's in it for me? In fact, several years ago, there was another survey done from uh, hundreds of churches and thousands of believers, and they asked them, why does the church exist? 89% of the people responded to meet my needs and my family needs. Only 11% said to reach the world for Christ. See, that's a perspective that we struggle with. And, and so we say, okay, I want to understand this commission. I don't want to lose sight of that. I don't want to do good things and forget to fly the plane. So let's look at this great commission and, and not only look at it in general, okay, this is what it is, but what are some practical principles that, that actually, what did it mean to live it out? To actually live it out, again, as individuals, as a church, what's it look like for us to understand and embrace this? Well, the first thing is kind of something we've touched on, and that is that we need to keep focused on the main thing. We need to realize that in this call, are there a lot of good things that we can do? Yes. But the call is to go make disciples. The call is to go bring the gospel into the world, to be salt light into the world, to bring the impact of the gospel to other people. Here's what happened. You think of Flight 401. 
Again, they're doing good things that they need to do to fly the plane. But when both of the pilots and the flight engineer are so focused on checking out this light that all of them forget to not only fly the plane, but none of them even notice the warning bell going off about the fact that they're descending, that was a tragic problem. And in the same way, there's a lot of really important things that we can do as a church. And part of that is investing in our growth. And, and, and you know, last week we talked about you know, what does it mean to know Christ's power? And, and, and part of that is growing in Christ through discipleship and the context of church and relationships. That's vital. That's a vital part of what we do. But it's not the only thing. See, in this, we've got to realize that there's also this call that God has called us to, and, and we can't lose sight of that. In fact, another passage that warns us of this danger is in the book of Revelation. It's uh, in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, are seven letters that Jesus writes to seven churches. And the first of those letters is to the church in the book of, of the city of Ephesus. And, um, and so look what he says in, in Roman, Revelation 2.2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Now, this sounds like a good church. Okay, I know your works. You're hard, working hard. You're enduring. You know, you can't bear with those who are evil. You're, you're committed to truth. You know, you call false teachers out. Continues, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Okay, you're enduring, you're being persecuted, you're being faithful. And you look at that, you stop there, and you say, man, this sounds like a good church. They're doing all the right things. But then you look at the next verse. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. And basically what he's saying, you're doing all the right things, but you forgot why you're doing them. You know, you're, you're being busy and you're playing church and you have all the church activities, but you forgot the reason. You forgot the heart, the core of it all. You've lost your love. And then he comes on and he continues that, you know, this is, it's like forgetting to fly the plane and the consequences are tragic. Look at the warning. Look at the warning. Next verse. Remember, therefore, from when you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, the lampstand was an image of the church. The church was established as a lampstand, as a place of light to reach its community. And here you have Jesus saying, oh, you're doing all these things, but you've lost your focus. And if you don't go back and remember the heart of what you're doing, I'm going to shut your church down. That's a drastic warning. And you know what's really scary? If we look at it historically, the church in Ephesus, which was one of the leading churches in the first hundred years of the church, planted by Paul, pastored by Timothy. You know, some of the who's who. Was, um, Apostle John was a pastor there for a period of time. Well, Jesus now speaks this warning to them. And the church of, or the city of Ephesus was removed a couple, or was destroyed a couple hundred years later. And ever since then, 1,700 years, there's not been a consistent church presence in that city. God has removed the lampstand. And what a warning. And, and I don't want to be there. You know, I, I don't want to get caught up in doing the good stuff that, that God's sitting there saying, yeah, you're, you're playing church, you're being busy, you got a bunch of programs, but you've lost sight of the main thing. Seek after me, to know Christ, his life-changing power, and to make him known. That's why, that's why we review these things. That's why they're vital to us. I don't want to lose sight of that. And part of that is recognizing the main thing is that, yes, it's part of our growth, but it's not just for us. 
And again, a few minutes ago, we mentioned the survey where people asked, you know, why does a church exist? 89% says, primarily for me and my family. 11% said to reach the world. Now, again, there are a lot of things that we talk about. Again, to know Christ is life-changing power. We want to know his power. We want to be involved in discipleship community. That's vital for us. That's, that's significant. We talked about a lot of that last week. But we also have to remember that it's not just for us. And the Great Commission tells us that. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Realize that as we're called to make disciples, it means reaching out to unbelieving family members and friends, being salt and light in the community, expanding the impact of the gospel into the world because the world needs it. It means looking outside of ourselves. It means inviting people. It means, you know, trying to bring people into the church. See, one of the problems is that a lot of times... In fact, some years ago, I'd done some work almost consulting with churches, and, and I'd meet with churches, and, and I'd talk with them about, you know, evangelism. Oh, yeah, we're committed to that. Well, how many people come to, oh, we don't know of any. You know, are you friendly? Oh, yeah, we're really friendly. All churches think that they're friendly. You know why? Because the people that come have friends, and their experience is it's friendly. And it's real easy for us as a church. We can be at real outreach, and then suddenly we all get friends, and so we come in and we focus on our friends and encouraging each other and say, this is great. And we totally lose sight of the person that might be visiting, the people, the person that's on the outside. And, and we need to nurture this heart and the spirit to say, I never want it to be just about me. I want it to be something that, that we're always reaching out. And part of what that means in reaching out, it means bringing people in that maybe don't share my faith and people that don't share my lifestyle, don't share my convictions, and that's okay. That's a good thing. And so often as a church, I can be, we can be threatened by that because, because we want to make it comfortable. I found a little video that tells a story that I think illustrates this challenge. Watch this and see what you think. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was no more than a hut, and there was only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. With little to no thought for themselves, they went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding areas wanted to become associated with the station and give their time and money and effort to support the work. New boats were brought in and new crews were trained and the little life-saving station grew. Some of these new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those who were saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they began to use it sort of as a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in this club's decor, and there was a memorial lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them were foreigners. The beautiful new club was in chaos immediately. The property committee hired someone to rig up a shower outside the club where victims of the shipwreck would be cleaned up before coming inside. 
The outsiders made the life-saving station extremely dirty. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities because they felt that they were unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. But a small number of members insisted upon life-saving as their primary mission and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. After all, the dissenting group's members were voted down and told that if they wanted to save lives, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. So they did. As the years went by, however, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old station. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was found. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that eastern seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters. But most of the passengers drown. It's a powerful illustration. You look at that idea of saying, you know, as a church, it's so easy to get caught up and almost become a club and we're comfortable and, and, it's, and, and all those things are good about growth, and, but then we lose sight of reaching out. And the fact of the matter is, I don't want to become a club and God has called us to be a soul-saving station. And if we become that, you know, what the reality is, is it's messy. It is, and, and you, there might be some people, I don't know Christ, and I'm coming, I'm bringing my brokenness, and I'm coming, hey, we're glad to have you. And, and you don't have to pretend to have it all together to come here. We're glad to have you. We come and we bring our mess. This is a place where mess is welcomed, and we need to encourage that, and we need to realize that part of that is you have people that come in, and, and praise God, I pray that God brings people in who are not believers, who want to come and search out and seek out Christ and ask questions. But here's what we need to realize. A non-believer is going to act like an unbeliever. And we got to be okay with that. And you're going to have new believers that are going to act like new believers who, who God's still working and fixing things, and we got to be okay with that in a place of grace, like Christ was, who, you know, was you know, accused of hanging out with, you know, with sinners. And, and that'd be a great, great, great thing if we're criticized, saying, hey, they got some sinners that attend that church. Praise God. I hope that's the case. And again, if, if you're here, you don't. Don't need to feel like you need to fix it, you know, or, or, or uh, pretend that it's all fixed. And because you don't clean up to come to Jesus, you come to Jesus as you are, and you let Him clean you up. And we need to be at this place of grace where we're dealing with each other's mess, and we're helping each other grow, and we're celebrating what God is doing even in the mess of it all. Because why? Because I want to have the heart of Jesus. And what was Jesus' heart? The Son of Man came to seek and to save that the lot that which was lost. I want to have that heart as, a, as an individual, as a church. That's who we want to be. Because in that, we look at it and say, it's not what we want to just do as a, as, a, as a church. This is a call not only to us as an organization, but to us as individuals. You see, it's easy to think of the Great Commission. Well, that's what the church is called to do as an institution, as an organization. But we have to realize that the church isn't an institution. It's more of an organism, of, a group of people that are living within it, that are living in the moving, and God is calling us to work within that. So if that's the case, this isn't just a command to the leadership. This is a command to each one of us to be a part of living it out. We're part of the commission to go make disciples. In fact, there are other places where it's explicit to our individuals. So, so let's take you, for example, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 9, it says that we are, it says whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please God. Our desire should be to please God, to have the smile of God. And what is it that God calls us to do in a sense that pleases Him? 
Verse 11 continues, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We're driven by this, but what is it, this, this, this knowing the fear of the Lord, when it talks about this fear of the Lord, it's not saying that I'm fearful of him, it's talking about this reverence, that, that in a sense, I want my kids to be reverent of me in the sense that they, that they want to please me. They're, they're, they're fearful of displeasing me, and it's saying in the same way that our love for Christ should be such that I, that I want to please him, I want to make him smile. And the way that we please God, we're driven by love to him. And, and he says, okay, now persuade others. That's the way that we, in a sense, tell, you know, tell God. And, and how do we persuade them? And it's a way that we're driven in a sense that we're driven by the love of Christ that compels us to do this. Look what it continues on. It says, you know, yes, God is most pleased when I commit myself to trying to persuade men and women for the truth of the gospel. When I tell them about Jesus Christ and the cross, and look at what it says, it's, this, it's not only this duty, but this compulsion. Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. It could be translated, con- compels us. For we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. The love of Christ, the love that I have received, knowing what I have received from Christ, compels me, it drives me. I'm so radically changed by it. If you're not a believer and you're saying, oh, this is a membership drive and they're trying to get more people to grow the church. No, that's not it. This is the motive. The motive is that, no, I've experienced this, and because I've experienced it, you know, I'm one beggar telling another beggar, here's where the bread is. This is how my life has been changed, and because my life has been changed, I don't want to keep it to myself. It's a a message that we all need. We're compelled. We're compelled because our our value system has been changed. He continues in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Not only are we new as individuals, but our, our person has been changed, our, purposes, our, our person and our purpose in life. In a sense, the Bible teaches that we're not only saved from our sin, we're saved for a new purpose. That we're not now still caught up in the rat race of life, that it's the one who dies with the most toys wins, or you know, that we're just seeking me, you know, our, our culture. People are literally committing suicide. I don't have meaning, I don't have purpose. As far as a Christ, we have eternal purpose. We are new creatures, have a new purpose, a new purpose in life. Our life has eternal significance. And what is that purpose? All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He's given us this incredible gift and now entrusted us to now give it to other people. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God is making his, his appeal through us. We've been given this and now we're called to be the ambassadors, to share Christ. He's doing it through us. Why? Because Jesus isn't here physically anymore. And he's not talking to the unbelieving friends and family members that we interact with. So how does God speak? He speaks through his people. He speaks through us. God makes his appeal through us. And and that reality of what God has done for us should then drive us to share with other people. Now, that being the case, it doesn't mean it's easy. No, it's actually not easy nor natural. And that's important to realize. And some of this we see in the very fact of the command itself. You know, why is it that Jesus gives us this command, not only here, but numerous other places, that numerous places that were called and commanded to do this, he calls us out. You know why? 
because it's not easy or natural. See, if it was easy or natural, then he wouldn't have to keep telling us to do it. I think of another place where this is really clear is in 2 Timothy 4. Look what Paul says, as for you, be, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, keep sober-minded, remember what's most important, remember to fly the plane, and what is that? Do the work of an evangelist. You know, don't lose sight of that. Keep the main thing the main thing. And we say, okay, but I'm called to do that, but, but I, don't, I don't have the ability. No, actually, you do. We're not only all called, we're also empowered. So go back to the Great Commission. You notice, I mean, we kind of pick it up in verse 19, go and make disciples of all nations. Don't skip verse 18 right before it. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples. Jesus is saying, okay, I have all authority. Now I'm giving you the authority and I'm giving you the call and the authority to actually accomplish the call. Now go and do it in my authority and in my ability. And some people would say, but, you know, but I'm not really gifted to do that. You know, some people have the gifts of evangelists, and they're out, outgoing, and they know how to do it. And, okay, let's back up and say, okay, what's the Bible teach about that? Actually, and the Bible talks about, is it the pastor's job to do evangelism? And well, let's look at Ephesians 4. It actually talks about gift, people who are gifted with evangelism. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers. Why did he do that? So they gave the evangelists to do the work of evangelism? No. He gave evangelists and pastors, shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, building up the body of Christ. You know why you have people with the gift of evangelism? To help the rest of us figure out how to do it. Because we have several people that are maybe a little bit more effective and they have ideas, but it encourages the rest of us. Here's why. Because you might have an evangelist that leads dozens of people to Christ, but we pray that God would lead hundreds of people to Christ. How does that happen? When you have the hundreds of people that are made up of this church said, I believe that God could use me to lead one person to Christ. When each one of us said, okay, God, use me, and if I reach one person, suddenly now we have a renewal and hundreds of people are coming into Christ. But then we still have in our mind, we say, but I'm not gifted. Why? Because we have a picture in our mind of an effective evangelist. Okay, in your mind, think of this. If you, if you think of an evangelist, do you have in your mind maybe a person, you have the traits in mind of what you think they probably are? You know, when I ask people this, uh, you know, at, at times, I'll say, well, tell me, and here's some of what they tell me, some of the traits they give me. Well, it's outgoing and the dynamic personality, somebody that is just, you know, that's willing to take the risk. Somebody that's a good speaker, and they're a good communicator, and they say, well, there's somebody that is bold and uninhibited and assertive, and they don't mind just stepping in and talking to a stranger. And they're somebody who's knowledgeable. They're able to answer the questions. They can go through, and, they, and if somebody has a, 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 an answer, you know, a question, they know how to answer, and I, I don't know how to do that. But somebody who's confident in their ability to convince you know, they have that, that personality that they can just talk people into things. And somebody who's gifted, they have the ability to communicate and, and someone who push, pushes the person to make the decision. Guess what's evangelism? We share your faith. Hey, you know, if you die today, are you ready? Have you, you want it ready to receive Christ? And, and so we're taught that. And someone who's focused on the process of sharing the faith. That's what we often think of. And here's the problem, is that most of us look at that list and say, that's not me. So if, if, if I'm called to be an evangelist, I'm not at all like that. So therefore, I'm not called. Well, what if that's the wrong list? See, actually what happens, a lot of times we have this picture and then we have this idea of what evangelism looks like and the picture that what we often think of is something kind of like this. Oh, floor, excuse me. Oh no, 
Floor seven, that's God's number. So that's why you're going there, or that's No, nice? I um, just like it. Okay. The, um, the, the button there says, uh, case of emergency, like, push that button. And then it brings the fire department. I too, it, if I have an emergency, I press a different button. Jesus. There is no Jesus button. Well, it's you don't you don't see it out, out here. It's um, it's it's more of a it's a button I have on the inside. You wouldn't gross. No, no you. Um, those uh, those those glasses work for you pretty good. Mm-hmm. They, yeah, they help you see. Yeah, I see better with them than without. Yeah, I I too. What once was was blind, but uh, but now I see. I wasn't blind. I Wait. was just nearsighted in one eye. I just I can see now because I I was I was in darkness, but now I'm not. It's, it's not a glasses thing. Contacts. What spiritual contacts? I the... do you um do you like talking to people in the elevator? It, is this. Well, you know, I'm... I love silence. Sure. Could I could I ask you a question? Do you if if you were to die tonight, do do you know where you're going? Four eight. No. It is hot in here. Oh, you think it's hot here? You do not want to go to hell. I, brother, this isn't your floor. Blessings. I think we got this one. <laughs> yeah, I love that, you know, because it has this idea, that's what we often think, you know, going and dynamic, you know, and, and take the risk. And, but what if that's the wrong picture? All right, let me ask you another question. I asked you a moment ago, think of someone who you think is an effective evangelist. What do you think of in that person? I've asked this of people in the past, gave you a list. Now I'm going to ask you another question. I've asked others as well. When you think of the person or people most instrumental in leading you to Christ, what traits do you think of? How would you describe that person? Now when I've asked people, here's what I generally get is that when they, when they say, okay, who are the people that are most instrumental in leading you to Christ? We expect, well, it's somebody who's outgoing and dynamic personality. No, usually they say it's not that, it's someone who's really loving and caring. We expect, well, it's somebody who's a great communicator, and usually they say, no, it's someone who's a really good listener and is there for you. We expect it's someone who's bold and uninhibited and assertive. No, usually it's someone who's caring and compassionate. We expect it's someone who's knowledgeable and it can answer all the questions. And usually we think, no, it's not that. It's actually someone who just walks the walk. And their answer is their lifestyle. We think it's somebody who's confident in their ability to convince. They know they have the right answers. Well, actually, no, it's usually someone who's confident in God's ability to convict. They just do the part. They trust God to do the miracle. We might expect it's someone who's, you know, gifted and ability and has the communication but it's not giftedness, it's burdened. It's someone who cares about the lost. You know, what you find is that even in that, you know, the most effective evangelists 
are consistently brand new believers who don't have all the right answers. That, you know, that don't, why? Because they're burdened. They just know, I, yeah, yeah, God has changed me. I have this. Let me share it with you. You know, we expect it to be the person who is, you know, that is pushy and is making, pushing to make a decision. No, usually they're people that share and then just is patient for God to do his part in his time. Well, that's the person that's focused on the process of sharing our faith. No, it's usually focused on the person. But because when you look at all this, if you were to sum up everything that the Bible teaches, everything that is here, what is this really saying? It's saying that God's primary method of evangelism is consistently discipleship, it's relationships. It's relationships. Even as we looked at last week in the Great Commission, go and make disciples. Disciple is relationship. You cannot have discipleship without relationship. God calls us to make disciples. This is a relational thing. It's when we approach people who in our lives are unbelievers and we build their relationships and we care about them and we listen and we're there for them and we pray for opportunities to share our faith in the right time, that's what God works. But, but so often, we don't take that little bit of initiative of just saying, how do I build that and how do I bring up a spiritual conversation? How do I invite them to church? I'm just going to live out my life and I'm going to pray that, you know, that eventually, if they have a need, they'll come to me. I think it's an approach to evangelism called the Little Bo Peep approach to evangelism. You remember Little Bo Peep? Little Bo Peep. Little Bo Peep has lost her sheep and doesn't know where to find them, but leave them alone and they'll come home wagging their tails behind them. And oftentimes, that's what we do. Well, I'm just going to live and I'm going to wait for my friends to say, hey, my life's a mess. Can you tell me about Jesus? Or as a church, we're just going to preach the gospel and wait for unbelievers to come in and say, my life's a mess. How many of you have had people come up to you and just approach you and say, my life's a mess, tell me about Jesus? Not many. It's not a very effective evangelistic approach. You know why? Because it's not biblical. What is the biblical approach? Look at Luke 15. And what do we have? We have the good shepherd who left the 99 and went out into the field and searched out the one that was lost. Now, what is it calling us to do? God is calling us to be that, to be that person that goes out and what we need to realize is, where do we go out? We go out in our own spheres of influence. That God has put you on a mission field. You interact with people that I don't get to interact with. You know, I hope and pray most of my co-workers are believers. You know, I don't know if I need to witness to Joe and, and Todd. And I, I hope that they're believers. The fact is, is that y'all are working with people that I don't have a chance to work with. And even people say, well, you know, you're professional. You know how to do this. If I go out and share my faith and they find out I'm a pastor, nobody wants to hear me. You know, it's like, oh, you're a pastor. You, they can't relate to me. And it's kind of like, that's your job. You're paid to be good. And, you know, but you, you guys are good for nothing. You're just out there just, you know what I mean. But, you know, you just, you know, you're, you know, you're just living life. You're this conviction. If you're sharing, it's not because it's any way that you, it's expected or it's your job. It's, it's who you are. And you have opportunities of reaching people I could never do it. So, so in the midst of this, let me encourage you. What is God calling? Who's God calling you to reach? And, and then be willing to move forward with the right confidence. Again, one of the things we said, well, it's a, well wrong view is this person that is confident in their ability to convince. Let's go back to the Great Commission. Do you remember before it says, go make disciples? It says, all authority has been given heaven and earth. Why do we do it? How do we do it? Because we believe that God has all authority and has given us that authority, given us that power. And so what I'm called to do is to say, okay, God, who are you calling me to? I'm going to pray for people. I'm going to open up the door. I'm just going to plant a seed, and I'm going to pray for you to do the work. I don't need to say, are you ready now? Or, no, it's 
is I've got to just pray and be involved in people's lives and pray that God does the miracle because only God can do that miracle. Now, we're going to talk about this a little bit more next week, but let me just even just in, in kind of closing give you some personal next steps. The first is pray for God's heart for the lost. I want to encourage you this week to be thinking about, God, who in my sphere of influence would you like me to pray for? Who in my sphere of influence would you like me to reach out to? Who in my sphere of influence are you placing on my heart? Ask for God's leading. We're going to talk about that next week. It's really significant. If you ask, he will answer that prayer, I promise. Not only that, but then part of that is identifying your mission field and recognizing that you have a sphere of influence as you say, God, give me the heart of loss. Who are the people? Let me understand my family, my neighborhood, my, my community, my, you know, my, my kids and, and, you know, and their parents on their sports teams or you know, my coworkers. Who are the people in your sphere of influence that God has called you to do? Who are the, you know, not the 99 that you have, who's the few that are out there that maybe God has called you to be a good shepherd to them? And then are you willing to say, okay, God, what is my part? And I'm going to pray, help me to be faithful in my part and trust you to do the rest. I'm going to trust you to do the miraculous. And next week, we're going to talk about what that means, what that looks like. And, but it's really the type of thing you say, we pray that God would do the miraculous. But here's what that looks like. It doesn't mean that we're going to have an event and an illusionist come and speak and he's hear the gospel and thousands of people are going to come to Christ or hundreds of people. It's not that we're going to go and I'm going to you know, suddenly do out ministry and I'm going to lead you know, all these people. Here's how hundreds of people come to know Christ. Hundreds of people say, God, use me to lead one person to Christ. Place my heart on my heart several people and I pray that in the next couple of years you could use me to use one person to Christ. Could God do that? Could you believe God for that? You see, if all of us embrace that, God's going to use us all for a little bit, faithfulness in our little mission field, and he's through us as a church going to have a significant impact into this community, into this culture, because we serve a, serve a miracle-working God who took a group of 120 people, and within 20, 10 years, you know, you got people saying, hey, these people are turning the world upside down. The same God, the same power, the same gospel that did that isn't work within us, but it's embracing that call and saying, God, we want that. God, we pursue that. We're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're not going to settle for a club. We want to be a place where souls are being saved. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.